Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. address to believers in Jesus Christ who are living in exile. These are folks who um, are encountering what it means to be a Christian as a strange thing in the world, and so the world they live in is a strange and foreign land to them. Uh, how they respond to that, Peter reminds them that though they are living in exile, they are also living in grace that the fullness of the grace of God has been poured out upon them by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. They have been brought to the Father. And so they are living lives of absolute and majestic grace in their lives. Now, what I want for us to look at this morning uh, is that to be an exile in a foreign and strange land means that we are also living in worship, that we are called to worship, that we are summoned before the throne of God's grace. That is the purpose of our creation. That is the fulfillment of our being. And so this morning, that is the, the main thought I want for us to have, is that as believers in, in Christ, we are called to be living in worship. Now, where we get that is in the very front of verse 3. Uh, Peter, I suspect, was dictating this letter to an amanuensis and uh, he starts out in the, in the normal fashion, you know, this is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he says, grace and peace to you. And I can almost imagine that as Peter is writing and sort of walking back and forth in the room, dictating to the amanuensis, that uh, the, the uh, concept of an elect exile in the dispersion and then having thought about the fact that of all people on the planet, this Peter, this me, is, is an apostle of Jesus Christ and all these things swirling in his head. He says, grace and peace to you. And he thinks about the grace of God and the fact that the peace that Jesus gives is not like the peace that the world gives. I can imagine him walking back, grace and peace to you. Whoa, wait a minute. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like that worship blurts out. It just sort of explodes from within. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's one thing about Peter you have to understand. He was always a religious man. We can just surmise that from where he lived and where he grew up and how he would have been brought up. He would have been brought up as a typical Jewish male of, of the first century there in the Holy Land in Palestine. And as such, he went to synagogue. As such, he studied the Torah because he was brought up in that time, in that place, by this culture, he would have been brought up to pray to God. He knew a lot about worshiping God. Worshiping God was something so intrinsic and so woven into the fabric of uh, the Jewish uh, faith and culture that, of course, he would worship God. But at this point, he's, he's, he's dictating and he says, but it's not just God and stuff. It's not just God and I go to synagogue and I worship and I fulfill my Sabbath obligation. I can tell everybody, oh, I've been to synagogue. Oh, I've been to church. I go to church every week. 
It is rather that this God that I have been taught to worship and I have been worshiping, this God is the Father of Jesus Christ in a way that just boggles the mind. And so he's, if you will, reduced to a constancy of worship because of who Jesus Christ is. See, that's what made the difference in Peter's life. That's what made the difference. He was, he was going along. He was just fine. He was reading his, his Torah. He was going to synagogue. He was worshiping God. He was participating in the sacrifices of the temple system. And then one day, Jesus came along and said, Peter, I have something else in mind for your life. I want you to follow me, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter, in that moment of crisis, chose Christ, and that made all the difference in his life. And that's why as he even thought about this, he was just compelled to pause and say, blessed be the Father. I've just got to worship him as Father because here now, so many decades later, there's a spot in this room. There, wait a second. Hello, 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 hello. I'll get you back. I'm not talking about getting him back. I'm talking about I'll get you people back. Your minds are elsewhere now. I've just been telling you about the glory of God and the majesty of his grace and the difference he makes in Peter's life and how when you encounter Jesus Christ and you fall in love with him, that you want to worship him, and all you guys can think about is... <laughs> Come back now. This Jesus made all the difference. And so Peter stops and he says, I'm, I'm just going to worship here for a moment. Now, the man who made all the difference was Jesus of Nazareth. And the one thing we can say about Jesus is that he was one impressive fellow. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. You don't even have to be a believer in Christ to be convinced that this one solitary life is the very center and heart of the course of the human race. You don't even have to be a believer to know that Jesus Christ brought something to humanity that no one else ever did. Try as they might to claim it, no one else ever did. There is a nobility about his character. There's a beauty about his life. There's a wonder about his mind and his thinking. There's something about Jesus Christ that even the greatest skeptic has to admit there's something to this man, Jesus. And the disciples found that out as they were each called out of some place in life, some from the fishing boats, some from the tax collecting tables, some from the political activism of the zealot party, some from other walks of life. But when they were brought together and they started to walk with Jesus Christ, they saw something in him, and they saw something about the way this man Jesus worshiped. You remember how often Jesus would go off in the early morning hours of the day? And he would find a solitary place, and there he would pray. There he would commune with the Father. Disciples knew that. They knew there was something about Jesus when he prayed. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, this was after the uh, resurrection, and they were on the road traveling from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. And as they were walking along, the risen Lord Jesus came and stood beside them, and evidently because of the tears in their eyes or the setting of the sun in their eyes, for whatever reason, they did not recognize Jesus as he was walking along with them. And they had this marvelous conversation that, that well, we won't relate it here, but... It ends with them arriving at their destination, and they say to 
this man, why don't you come in, have supper with us? Sure, I will. They come in, they sit down together, and Jesus, they don't recognize him yet, but he picks up the bread, he breaks the bread, and he thanks the Father for the bread. And the two disciples turn to each other, and they say, that's Jesus. We recognize the way he prays. We recognize the special nature of his relationship with the Father. When this man, Jesus, talks to the Father, there's something unique going on there. And so when Peter says, blessed be the Father, he's thinking about the way Jesus used to bless the Father and pray to the Father. Jesus is one impressive fellow. And those who know him and those who love him want to worship the way he did. Those of us who love him want to worship so that the very same intimacy with the Father is there, so that the very same connection and reliance and faith and trust, all those are there. And so when Peter says, blessed be the Father, he's not just giving us a throwaway line. You know, it's not just the way, uh, you know, we might say just sort of subconsciously and without thinking, hallelujah, brother, praise the Lord, uh, amen. Uh, by the way, there's nothing thought. If you want to do that, go right ahead. I mean, right now would be a good time. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But this, this isn't just a thoughtless throwaway line. Blessed be the Father. What you see here is the very core, the, the inner essence of that relationship that, that Jesus had established for Peter with the Father coming, coming out. Blessed be the Father. Now, how do you bless God? I mean, how are you going to bless God? I understand what it means for God to bless me. Uh, God blesses me because there's some big gap in my life. There's something missing. I'm coming up way short on the resource department. God blesses me because he looks down in my life and he sees there this, this, this creature who's, who's getting along as best he can and it's not good enough. And so God starts pouring in grace and he starts pouring in power and he starts pouring in wisdom. God uh, looks down and in his mercy, he starts to, to give guidance and, and resources and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, all these things begin to, to work and to operate because I can't make it on my own. I cannot sustain myself. God starts working in that way and I see blessings just coming down and down and down and down, you know. And these are tremendous blessings and, and they're, they're not what the world wants necessarily, but it's what I need. And, you know, by his grace, God then changes your heart so it's not just what you need, it's what you want. You want his blessings. That's what it means when God blesses us. But what does it mean when we bless God? Is there some gap in God? Is there something missing? Is he incomplete? No. He's perfect. God blesses us because we have nothing. We bless God because he has everything. We bless God because he first blesses us. And when we give praise and honor and glory to God and we worship and we bless him, it is because he has first poured his blessings into our lives and those blessings become a mirror reflecting the glory of God back to him where it belongs. See, when God blesses us, he gives us this tremendous opportunity to glorify his name and to honor him and to praise him and to adore him and to love him. 
And so we bless God when we thank and praise him for the blessings he's poured into our lives and we respond to the fullness and the wholeness of who he is coming to us in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? So when Peter says, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying let's get serious about the fact that Jesus has made all the difference in our lives and let's just praise and worship and glorify God. That's what we need to be doing. See, and when we do that, we sort of join with, uh, with David in, in the Psalms. It was David who said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord from the deepest core of who we are. Everything about us, you know, all our resources, all our relationships, every moment, every day, every venue, let us bless the Lord with everything in us. Now, if we read the whole psalm, Psalm 103, we would have seen uh, or read that, that David says, yes, bless the Lord on my soul, all that was within me, and, you know, and everything in creation, bless the Lord. Hosts of heaven, bless the Lord. All his people, bless the Lord. And then he comes down and says, and soul, self, get busy. Bless the Lord and praise him and worship him and adore him. Now, Peter knows what's coming next in this letter. He knows what he's writing to. He knows he's writing to people who have challenges and difficulties and problems. They're facing persecution. Uh, they're, they're at their wit's end about what to do next. Uh, they look at their lives and say, you know, what's going on here? We have no idea how to get out of this or get through this or get over this. Peter knows he's going to write to these folks. He's going to give them some very real, practical insight into how their Christian faith is to draw them and guide them through uh, every bit of life. But before he ever gets there, he says, let's just stop and worship the Lord. Let's just praise him and worship him. And he's not just talking about, uh, well, let's make sure that we went to church on Sunday. Please come to church on Sunday. I mean, there's something about worshiping together, corporate worship, joining our hearts and our voices, our minds, encouraging one another, each of us singing a little bit louder because there's somebody next to us who's singing worse, I mean, who's, who's covering us up while we're singing. And so, you know, there's something about corporate worship, but it's more than just an hour on Sunday morning. Week, it's beginning the day, it's beginning the moments you know, every step along the way, I'm going to be blessing the name of God, living a life that blesses the name of God. So that, that's, that's, you know, why I'm suggesting to you that um, uh, Peter begins this letter and he says, you need to live in worship. This is where we are. We're going to live in uh, worship. So bless the Father, worship him uh, without ceasing. But then um, Peter says, and here's why. There's a very good reason why. Now, he's already given us the one reason, and that is that the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. We call upon him as Father only because Jesus Christ has brought us to the Father's throne. We have no right to call him Father. We have no right within ourselves to call him Father. But when Jesus Christ gets a hold of us and the Holy Spirit changes us, he, we, we are brought into the orbit of the kingdom. We are made children of God. And at that point, we call upon him, the Holy Spirit moving our hearts to say, Abba, Father, and we are children of God. It's almost like before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be his children. It's kind of like that. 
So that's, that's the first part of it. We already have a reason to worship the Father, and that is because he's the Father of Jesus Christ, the Son. But then uh, look at the, the last part of verse 3. Um, by the way, verses 3 through 5 are all one sentence in the Greek. In the Greek language, it's all one sentence. Uh, the main clause is, is there at the beginning of verse 3, blessed be the Father, and everything else between uh, that and the end of verse 5 are all subordinate clauses. What that means is they are just supporting the main thought. The main thought is blessed be the Father, and, and everything else is supporting that thought according to the grammar of the Greek. Uh, my translation starts a new sentence with according to his uh, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. But the, um, uh, the, the, the Greek is something more like blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again. That, that's actually a better translation because I made it. And, uh, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. Mercy. Why do we forget mercy? You know, why is it that, that we have this notion that, you know, God, God saved us and, you know, that, that took a little bit of doing, but now I'm doing pretty good. You know, now I'm doing okay, and mercy is, is something that I need dead, but I don't need now. But Peter says, according to his great mercy, this overflowing of the mercy of God to, to, to we who are just, uh, to us who are, are just unable within ourselves to live for Christ. You know, and we have this idea that, well, you know, uh, Jesus died for, for everybody, you know, who, who's accepted Christ. He's died for me, died for you, but he had to die a little harder for you. I mean, I, I was pretty close to the kingdom when, when Jesus found me. I wasn't that bad. You, on the other hand, you were pretty tough. Uh, Jesus shed his blood. We're washed in the blood. But, you know, you needed a whole bathtub. I just needed a little test tube full. Uh, you know, we're all saved. Now, where did we get that idea? It took the tremendous, unfathomable mercy of God to save each one of us. We need to keep that in our minds. You know, just about the moment we, we, we start to get puffed up and think that we can stand and we can make it on our own, we need to understand that mercy of God is what saved us. It's the mercy in Jesus Christ. So uh, that, that, that's what he starts out. He says, uh, according to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope born again this is something the world doesn't understand they think they do but they don't nicodemus came to jesus one night you remember that came to jesus said jesus what must i do to go to heaven you know i, I want to go to heaven what do i have to do and uh, i think nicodemus pretty much figured he already had most of the answer uh, he, he was, I think, looking for Jesus to say, well, Nicodemus, you remember your Torah studies. Here's the point to emphasize. Here's, here's something that, that you knew already. Just, just sort of in, in, integrate that into your thinking and in the process. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that Nicodemus, being a religious leader, felt as though he had most of the answer, and he was just looking for Jesus to give his take on things. So, Jesus, what must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is doing a quick data search in his religious studies, and he's trying to find that somewhere in his religion. And all he finds is, no, you've got to work. No, you've got to sacrifice. No, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And Jesus comes along and he says, you must be born again. And it's not computing for Nicodemus. 
So Nicodemus uh, says, well, Jesus, you realize that's kind of a silly thing to say. I mean, can a man enter into his mother's womb and reverse the process and be born a second time? And Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, um, I'm not surprised, but you've kind of missed the point. You know, it's your flesh and blood. You're, you're going to be born flesh and blood, but to be born again, you've got to be born of the water. You've got to be born of the Spirit. And unless you think, you know, just, just in case you think that you understand all this, you do know that the wind comes. You don't know where it comes from. You see its effect, and then you don't know where it's going. And that's what it's like when the Spirit gets a hold of your life. You're not going to control it. You're not going to determine it. You're not going to decide how. But the grace of God will. And that's why I say you must be born again. You see, Nicodemus, you had nothing to do with your own birth. You were there. I mean, I, th I think about this from time to time. And uh, please don't ask me why, but from time to time, I think about the day I was born. And what dawns on me is I have no memory of it. It's all hearsay. <laughs> I have pretty good evidence, but, uh, but I wasn't there. I didn't cause my birth. That was something else done. And handed to me and that's the, the way it is when you're born again it's not something you do it's something God does in you and he brings about a new life in Christ and so worship and praise and bless the father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Understand, when did God do this? You know, when, when, did he, um, when did he cause us to be born again? At the moment of our deepest despair and hopelessness. You know, when you come to Christ and you, and you finally embrace him because of the work of the Spirit, it's because you've been convicted and convinced there's no other way. You know, there's almost a, a holy desperation about it. Nothing wrong with that. Because all that means is you've been convicted of the fact that there's nothing within yourself, your strength, or your wisdom that can bring you to Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit works that work, you're in a moment of absolute hopelessness. You now all the other things you relied on, they're, they're, they're crumbling, they're, they're failing. And you finally realize there's hope in no one else other than Jesus Christ. And so you're born again into hope from absolute hopelessness. Now, this isn't just theological understanding of what happened. This is, this is how we live because you will never be in a hopeless moment because you have a living hope. And it doesn't matter how far down it is and how dark it is and how despairing it is. It, it just doesn't matter how utterly uh, much of a failure you, you think it is. You have a living hope, and the hope is always there because it's in Jesus Christ, and the Father caused the new birth into that uh, living hope, and then through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And uh, we, we would just want to pause there and just glorify God for the resurrection. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the guarantee of our resurrection, which is um, the, the avenue whereby the power of God comes into our lives 
um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whereby the Holy Spirit declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power, all those things, marvelous, wonderful things. And so that's the, the first reason we're, we're really blessing God and praising God is because of that born-again experience that God saved us out of his great mercy. Well, we read on. Verse 4. He caused us to be born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God has given to us an inheritance. Now, God gave Abraham an inheritance. You remember that? He came to Abraham. It's back in the book of Genesis. And uh, he said, uh, Abram, really, uh, I would like for you to get up and leave your family and your homeland. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. It's not yours yet, but I'm, I'm promising it to you. You're not there, but I'll show it to you. You just get up and go. Trust my promise that I'll bring you to this land. It's yours as an inheritance. And uh, from that moment on, Abram's life, Abraham's life was totally reshaped, reformed, and guided in a whole new direction because of the promise of God for an inheritance. You remember that? And then when the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt and Moses came to them, he said, look, folks, we, we, uh, we need to get out of here. God's going to take us to the promised land. What was the promise? It was the promised inheritance. And so the whole Exodus journey was towards the promise. And that promise reshaped the life of the nation, how they lived, what they did, why they were doing it. Everything became determined with, with a view towards the inheritance. And now God has given to us an inheritance. You remember the parable of the prodigal son. This is the man had, had two sons. The younger son came to him and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now. The dad gave it to him. The younger son abused his inheritance. And when it was spent and it was gone in a far country, he came to his senses. He realized, you know, I'm better off in my father's house. He came back. The father saw him, embraced him, put a robe on him, ring, shoes, fatted calf, the whole thing, all because this son was an heir. And though he had abused the inheritance, he belonged in the household. The older son, you remember, came up and said, Dad, why are you giving him a party? He, he blew all, all the funds. Why, why does he get a party and I don't? And the dad said, you've got an inheritance, and all that I have is yours. And the older son, who misunderstood the inheritance, yet had a place in the household because of the promise. See, you have been born again to an inheritance kept in heaven for you. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be distorted. It cannot be lessened or diminished. This inheritance stored up in heaven for you is there, kept safe. You know, Jesus did say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moths get in, they destroy it, and rust destroys it. He says, lay up treasures in where? Heaven, where moths don't destroy and the rust doesn't corrupt it. He says, that's, that's where your focal point needs to be. There is an inheritance for us, kept in heaven for us, and it is certain and it is secure. This is our assurance. As we live today, the inheritance is always kept safe for us. Look at the, the, the very end of that, uh, that verse. It's verse 4. Kept in heaven for you. It doesn't say kept.
heaven by you. It doesn't say you've got an inheritance until you blow it. It doesn't say you've got an inheritance if you can earn it. It doesn't say you've got an inheritance as long as you can keep your grades up. It doesn't say you've got an inheritance as long as you meet the, the good housekeeping heavenly seal of approval. It says you've got an inheritance because God the Father is keeping it for you. There is an inheritance that will never be taken away. Kind of feel like worship, don't, don't, don't you? I mean, that, that, that's the way it's going. Okay, um, then look at this next part. This is verse 5. Now he says, the inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, now he's talking about the you, the us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It says, this inheritance is for you because by faith and not by your works, God is keeping you and guarding you. God is doing that. I, I don't know if you've picked this up, but as he's, as he's talking about salvation in, in this sentence, he's talking about the past experience of salvation when we were born again by the grace of God. He's talking about the current experience of salvation as we are traveling the road to the inheritance, being kept safe, as we are being guarded now by the power of God. And he's talking about the future completion and fulfillment of salvation, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is the salvation that will be known in its fullness and its entirety in the last day. So that, that, that whole sweep, past, present, and future, is in mind here. Just uh, looking at verse 5, just sort of underline uh, those words, by God's power, through faith, not works, through faith. So, okay, um, so there it is. Uh, Peter says, well, let's worship. Blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of all this that he has done, all this that he is doing, and all this that he's promised, and all this that he will do. Let's just worship, praise, and adore him. So we're called to live in worship, just worshiping God constantly. Now, why don't we? It's the same reason, you know, it's not, it's not complex. We take worship and we make it about us. You know, we come into a service like this, we come into a church, and what do we do? Does it speak to me? Does, does the music please me? Oh, no, they chose a song I don't know. Um, you know how long will he preach? You know, I'm thankful the pews are padded. With lumbar support, folks, we paid extra for that. <laughs> But we think it's all about me. We think that, that, that worship is, is, is something that I need to feel good about. It has to be uplifting to me. I've got to get something out of it. If I don't get anything out of it, we failed as worship. Here's a radical thought. You've already thought of it, but it's, it's like super radical. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Your life is all about him. Your salvation is all about him. Your relationship with the Father is all about him. The cross is all about him. It's all about him. And the worship to which we are called is all about the glory of the Father in the Son 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all about him. That's what worship is about. And, and, and when we start operating on the idea that worship is about me, then, well, then worship can be inconvenient, and then worship can be dull, and then worship can be uninteresting. But if worship is about God, if it is about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you tell me if worship can be boring or unexciting. I sort of get tickled. Every now and then I'll either go to a conference, rarely, but then I'll tune in on conferences through the wonders of the Internet. And, and I'll, I'll see somebody leading a conference, and they, they, uh, they, they have speakers and teachers and so forth. And then somebody will come up and say, we're going to have worship time, and we're going to sing now. What is worship time? Give me a moment that is not worship time. You know, give me an instant in the life of the believer that is not worship time. So blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to worship constantly. And, um, the Father is infinitely worthy of our worship and praise. The, the Father is worthy of the constancy of our worship and praise. The Father is, is uh, worthy of, of praise that worship that leads to obedience. See, and that takes place at the corporate level, what we're doing now. It takes place at the private level as we have uh, personal devotions and personal prayer time and worship time. Worship takes place in our homes when we teach our children what worship is about. So we model it in front of them. Worship takes place as we go out into a hostile world as strangers and as exiles, and we live for Christ. Worship is to lead to lives of obedience, lives that glorify the Father. We praise him with our words. We praise him with our lives. So that's where we are. Uh, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every moment, every day, with every person, wherever we are. You join with me in prayer, please. Father in heaven, I thank you for the marvelous way in which you've called us out of the lethargy of our lives again to worship you. I thank you that you have summoned us out of self-preoccupation into a focus upon you. I thank you, Father, that our worship cannot be confined to this room. But it's so expansive, it fills the universe. It fills the eternity of heaven. Father, I thank you for the gift of worship, and I pray that our lives would be so surrendered to the doing of your will and yielded to the work and movement of your Holy Spirit that wherever we are, in whatever venue, with whatever person, our lives would be worship places where you are honored and glorified. Father, for the person here this morning who does not know Christ, I pray for the movement of your spirit. Call them to that born-again experience to know their, your grace in the powerful way in which sins are forgiven and new life is bestowed. And Father, for the believer here who has wandered, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to bring us back with a new dedication of faith. And Father, I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.